Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room, where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. It's been a really difficult and confusing year when it comes to our money. Really scary as well. And it won't come as a surprise that money is now one of the biggest causes of poor mental health in the UK. So if you're feeling anxious and worried or unsure, you are by no means alone. And that is where Octopus Money Cage comes in. They're a B Corps on a mission to help everyone feel good and safe about money and get all the finance help they need to create the life they really want. They'll answer any money questions you have and help you build a personal plan for everything you're saving for, whether you're looking to buy a new home, save for your family's education, or anything in between. I can promise you that their coaches are super friendly and you can trust that they're always on your side. Search Octopus Money today to find out more and start saving today. Richard E. Grant, I am really delighted to have you on my podcast and particularly because you are someone who has a public profile who has been so emotionally honest about your experiences of BAFTA awards, but the deep experience of your grief for Joan and as a father and a person in the world. So I think you're an amazing role model for mental health. You were launched to fame in 1987 with the cult classic With Nell and I, and you've done a huge number of films and TV, including the Oscar nominated Can You Ever Forgive Me in 2018. And your recent project has been your incredible book, A Pocket Full of Happiness, that I read every word of every page. And it's it's a love story, really. It's a heartbreaking love story, but it's a love story to your wife, Joan, but also to, to life and how we grapple with life and death and being a parent and being a friend and being the receiver of friendship or not. And it's a beautiful memoir. So thank you for writing it and thank you for joining me on this podcast thank you very much for inviting me (laughs) so my first question if you're up for having a therapeutic conversation is what is a particular challenge you are facing or have faced well my brain is on half speed i think because i I got back from australia yesterday having done a two-week one-man show tour about my uh, memoir so trying to Stay awake and be in the moment of the day is, I suppose, the biggest challenge. And being on the road with this show and talking it through with an audience 
has been incredibly therapeutic and life enhancing because I get to share my story with an audience full of people who, by their laughter and response, get to share in the journey that I've been on with my late wife over the last 38 years. And then coming home to the complete silence of being a widower is again, always a readjustment. But having said that, I'm also surrounded by everything that we collected together and our lives together. So I take great comfort from that because even though Joan is not physically here, I know what her response would be having been together for 38 years to almost every situation that we're in. And I find that I have an ongoing silent conversation in my head with her about that. And I find that helpful. So. That is my state of mind. I don't know whether I've answered your question or not, but that's that's what's going on. <laughs> that, I mean, I feel like I've had a little insight inside of it in that that transition of going on a stage and being, I guess, affirmed and receiving the love of an audience and telling your story and telling your love for Joan and Ollie and all the experiences that you've had but then the emptiness of the house, there's a thud, I guess, a kind of, ugh. But you keep her inside you, the love that you shared and the, how she is such a big part of you. You're constantly in conversation with each other. And so she's teasing you or laughing at you or you're talking to her. And so the relationship with her continues, although it's radically altered because she's died. Yes, that's that's true. And... Uh... I suppose it's a way that your brain or your heart reconfigures a way to try and navigate the abyss of grief that you have to deal with. And I think that that has been the most positive way forward that I've found, because I found the, the silence of her not being here uh, so overwhelming that this is a way of, I suppose, navigating through it now. And the other thing that I'm very grateful for is that the memory tricks you into not remembering the worst part of her illness. So that now when I think of her, I remember her in in the best of health and the best of form rather than what happened in the last eight months of her life. And I'm very grateful for that. And I suppose in writing my diaries and then publishing a memoir about it is to avoid that rose-spectacled version that you have of life where you look back and just remember all the sort of rosy glozy bits that that in detailing forensically at the end of every day for those eight months meant that I have a palpable record of what that was like so that I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the relief that she was finally released from being so ill is something that you can easily forget when you're remembering somebody and thinking, oh, well, if only that we'd had longer. When she said, you know, the last month of her life, she said, please let me go. I am so exhausted. I've had a fully fulfilled life. I've seen everybody that I wanted to see. I've been everywhere that I want to go. And I've eaten everything that I want to eat. I'm just tired now and it's my turn to go. So if I hadn't kept a diary of all that, I think it would be very easy to, to forget that that is what she really wanted by the end. And what I get from what you're saying, which is I, I think is true for most people, is the sort of navigation in one's mind of tricks that the mind can play and actually having documented a clear narrative through 
your journals, which then have become this wonderful book. And your recall for conversations, reading it, it's like they're in the room, you have an amazing recall. But I guess having that gives you both truths, that you have the memory of her when she was well and exuberant and her best self. But that doesn't trick you into thinking she would be like that now. So the documenting of her illness and the thing that was so poignant and so painful was how suffering doesn't make one a better person, does it? Because she was testy or cross or or frightened and you were too. And although there was deep love all the time, it it sounded like an extremely painful, difficult eight months and exhausting. Yes. I mean, her biggest fear was that her life would end in a hospice or a hospital bed and that she would be in pain. So the fact that we were able to facilitate that palliative care nurses came and saw her for 10 minutes, three times a day in the final week of her life, and that she could be at home in our bedroom, felt like an amazing achievement. Because having fear that she would be, you know, especially with COVID, isolated in a hospital bed was what she so didn't want to happen. And she said, please, can you, you try and ensure that I am at home? So the fact that we were able to deliver that for her, I suppose, felt like a real achievement. And it's also an incredible feeling of privilege that because my daughter's, one of her best friend's father died of a heart attack and they never got to say goodbye properly. We felt so privileged and grateful that we were there right at the end to her last breath. So if you can talk about a death being a good death, then that's what it felt like to us to have done that. And there really is a very big difference between a good death and a sudden and out of the blue traumatic death in the sense that you knew that she didn't suffer, that she felt safe, that she was loved. She was in the place she wanted to be. She wasn't alone and she wasn't frightened. And you weren't left imagining what she was thinking or what was going on because you were there and you were with her and loving her and keeping her safe, I guess, until the end. Whereas... You know, there really are bad deaths and there really are good deaths. And hers, as much as that you couldn't save her life, was was a really good death. And that, that makes the grieving process less what-ifs, if only I had, if only I could. It sounds like you don't have any regrets. No, and people have said to me, oh, have you been through the anger stage yet? And hand on heart, I can say that I haven't felt, uh, may, maybe it'll come, but... I don't feel that there's something to be angry about because we did have those eight months together that having been promised with this miracle American drug that she was put on called Topotnib, that she might live 12 to 18 months. And then she was the one who flagged up after three months of being on it that she believed that it had stopped working. And once we'd had the tests in June of 2021, it was true to the surprise of the oncologists and the other doctors. She knew before they officially knew. So I think that that has helped as well. But is anger something that you have to go through is my question to you. No, not necessarily at all. No. I mean, what they're talking about is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, where there's numbness and bargaining and then anger and in the end, acceptance. And what we understand now is that you may have all of those feelings, but they're not necessarily in order. And also that grief is is an oscillation. It's a moving between 
feeling a lot and that could be sadness it could be anger it could be numbness it could be despair it could be all of those things at once and on the other side being restorative having hope moving forward having a break from the grief and the grieving process is the oscillation between the two time to allow yourself to adapt and adjust to this new reality that you didn't want but also time to let yourself live and love again and it feels like your actual movements what you do with your time is a very natural oscillation between loss orientation and restoration orientation in that you give yourself time to remember her to write about her to think about her to grieve and then you get yourself into gear and you go on a stage or you see a friend or you travel or you do a movie and you're living. So that the kind of loss doesn't go, but it goes to the more to the back of your mind to allow you to be in your present. And if people have complicated grief, stuck grief, it's where there isn't any movement and there's just locked in the rumination of the whirling wheel of really very, very deep pain, but often it's a lot of rumination about the what ifs or regrets or that life isn't worth living. And as much as you deeply miss Joan and want her to be in your life, it feels like you're still living, that you've got a force for living. Yeah, and I think that what has proved to be so profound about this simple phrase where she said to us, I challenge you and uh, our daughter to find a pocket full of happiness in each day, is that it absolves us from any guilt of feeling joy or happiness or pleasure after her death. Whereas I think that instinctively you feel, how can I possibly be enjoying myself when she is no longer here? But because her edict was to find that pocket full of happiness each day, Feeling no guilt seems an incredibly generous and welcome gift to have been unexpectedly given by her. And it feels like she was loving you into your future by giving you that. I mean, she was very territorial, uh, lioness-like, because a couple of weeks before she died, she she started a conversation. She said, oh, what do you think of so-and-so? And oh, what do you think of Julia? And, uh, and then I realised that... She was picking your next date, as it were. Yeah, she was working through the 20 single women that we knew and detonating their prospects in case they came a calling. <laughs> and I said, I've rumbled you, I know exactly what you're doing. And she said, well, you know, this person's the way she eats would drive you nuts and her accent would grate on your nerves and follow. Um, so I was very amused by that, but that she was staking her claim beyond beyond her death, <laughs> which may well be, you know, the inhibitor for me ever falling in love with anybody else ever again. I don't know. I was very touched by that. I guess it's both, isn't it? In that that she wanted you to have pockets full of happiness every day and giving you permission. But not with another woman. But not, <laughs> not her territory. And do you think that will block you? Or do you reckon that you can come to terms with it? Well, I was only 14 months and she died. but I, uh, And I know that statistically men, Paul McCartney being a very famous example of this is that men statistically find another partner usually within I think seven to nine months. It's a yeah yeah the saying is that men replace and women grieve. Ah right well then I must have more womanliness in me than uh, another man because it's not it genuinely not crossed my mind. <laughs> 
at all. I couldn't imagine. I think because what I've said in the book as well is that to be truly seen by another human being is her greatest gift to me because I felt that I have been completely understood in every possible way by her. And the idea that I could meet anybody else who would do that in quite the same way seems unlikely to me at this at this point in my life. But, you know, who knows? In a year's time, I may be. I mean, I guess from the outside, what I would suggest is that, of course, you're never going to have or be known or have a relationship, anything like your relationship with Joan. And yet it is possible to have multiple loves that we can love different people very differently and one doesn't knock the other one out. So it's possible to continue loving Jane and have the memory of the way that she knew you and the way that you lived your 38 years, nearly 40 years of relationship, all your adult life. And it is possible also to love again in a completely different way with somebody else. And they can sit sometimes uncomfortably, but they can definitely sit side by side. I think what I've experienced with many clients is often children have great difficulty in navigating new relationships and friends have lots of judgmental opinions. But also, I'd like to add, men and women do much better in relationship after their partner has died, that they over time do less well alone than they do in relationship. Because we're born to be in relationship and to be loved and to have that intimacy and connection with one person. And that, well, you tell me what you think about that. I suppose it comes to what you feel that you need. If if I felt that I had to go out and find another partner, that impulse has not galvanised me in any shape or form so far. But I don't know whether that's still early days. I would imagine it's early days. And you've been so busy. Yeah, but, I, you know, I've met on every job. I meet new people and there's always the possibility of forming a relationship with somebody else. but. Not once in the last 14 months have I thought, oh, well, yeah, I'd like to dally and dance with this person. It just hadn't really felt like a possibility. You know, if you're looking for something, then you will go and find it. But I've certainly not been tempted to go online and find an internet date or try and be set up with somebody. I'm not at that stage or have that inclination. And that's where your energy is now. And it doesn't necessarily predict the future, it can change. But where your energy is now is, I guess, be very preoccupied with Joan and your daughter. How is your relationship with your daughter? Because often partners and their children grieve differently and you have to kind of recalibrate the whole family, don't you, when a parent has died? My daughter, when, when she was a teenager, identified, she said, oh, I think that... You and I, Dan, daughter, have twin brain syndrome so that, you know, when we're watching something on TV together and Joan was sitting in between us, that Oily and I would both you know, call her Oily because she was officially called Olivia, but two months before she was born, Joan said, I think with your length of face and torso, the likelihood is that she'll look like olive oil, <laughs> Popeye's wife. So that's why she was nicknamed Oily before she was even born. Anyway... Ollie and I would be watching something and lean forward and lock eyes and, you know, be, both be incredibly moved by something on TV or in a movie. And Joan would say, what the hell's wrong with, you, you know, the two of you? So it's not that Joan was 
not empathetic or sympathetic to things, but she wasn't as open book emotional as my daughter and I are. So that twin brain syndrome has carried on and has been incredibly helpful because we've never been out of sync uh, with each other. And certainly in post Jones' death, that we are, are able to give each other great comfort and solace in, in that I can just by looking at her, I know, and she me, you read what the other person's emotional state is. So whether that psychiatrically is codependence or not, I don't know, but she identified it as twin brain syndrome, which is what it feels like. It feels very profoundly loving. And, uh, you know, as long as you're not, not merging and she's not parenting you, then it sounds healthy. I, I think she's always parenting me. Is she? That's oh, yeah. probably, technically speaking, isn't ideal. Uh, I know. I mean, she's, you know, she's always said to me, we've got to keep the boundaries, Dad. So my problem is that I'd, I've never really been able to stick to boundaries in any shape or form. So that means that even at the age of 33 and three quarters, she is having to um, put down the boundaries for her 65 and three quarter year old father, which... Calling Dr. Freud is not ideal, as you say, but that is the way that it is at the moment. But I guess you, your boundaries were smashed by your mother and father, what your dad being alcoholic, you waking and finding your mum in flagrante in the, in, you know, in the back of the car. So you weren't, boundaries weren't modelled for you, they weren't in you. Whereas she somehow, I don't know how she knows about boundaries and that she knows that there is a difference between you, that there's stuff she shouldn't hear and stuff that she shouldn't be preoccupied with that's yours and stuff that she doesn't tell you that's hers. Uh, yes. And, you know, she has, she's in a very good, strong relationship with her partner. And uh, he, he is so the opposite to me, um, which I'm very proud that she hasn't gone for a boundary-free emotionally open book case like her father is her upbringing has paid off in some shape or form that she's not just boundaryless and she's very very practical and very very like her mother in that way i'm going to interrupt our conversation for a message from our sponsor i'm very happy to tell you this episode is sponsored by athletic greens i started taking ag1 because I was sick and tired of scooping handfuls of vitamins and supplements that were really hard to swallow every morning. This has been a brilliant solution for me, because with one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and adaptogens. While the greenness of it scared me at first, I now actually look forward to it every morning and have started to notice the dramatic improvement it has had on my energy levels. Now that is a win. It's partly because the quality of my sleep has seriously improved, and so I feel much clearer mentally. AG1 is a small micro habit, and I'm into micro habits with big benefits. It's the one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash therapyworks 
to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we could all do with nutritional insurance. So when we think of your challenges and the depth of it was because of the depth of your love and the level of your loss is equal to the level of your love and being known in that way. What are the things that have supported you to manage it? I run every morning in Richmond Park because I live opposite the, the park. So I find that the discipline of doing that and the endorphin release incredibly helpful. It's one of the things I tell people who are grieving to do is to move their body because it reduces the cortisol and the fear because grief often feels like fear, that heightened state. So it physiologically drops the cortisol and releases the dopamine neural networks, which is where you feel calmer and safer and better. So it actually changes the brain. So it is an amazing fast track way to feel better that you did instinctively. <laughs> yeah, but I've run all my life. So it's not that I've arrived at that through some great scientific virtue. It's, it's just I've always done it. But instinctively you did it, that it is good for you. I think it is good. And Joan was very pragmatic and clear-sighted about it and sanguine about things. And she said, there's no point in wallowing around in stuff. Very Scottish. Yeah, exactly. And I think when my father died at the age of 53 when I was 24. And it had such a profound impact on me of underlining how brief a lifespan can be. So that every year that I've lived beyond his 53 has felt like a bonus. And I spoke to other people who's parents have died, I suppose, prematurely, and they've said the exact same thing, that you feel as if you're living on borrowed time because the role model that you have as a parent, once that parent is gone, and if they die as he did at that age, then you have to try and find a compass in somebody else or in other things. So I suppose it's made me, I mean, I've been sort of hyper-curious and uh, energetic. It's made me try and fill and live every day as fully as possible. I suppose if I had to be told, right, well, you've only got five days left, that I wouldn't feel, oh God, I didn't do everything that I wanted to do. So I suppose that makes for a slightly manic way of living life, but that's just the way that mine happens to be run. I think what you're saying is that your mindset, even when faced with great difficulty and pain as in Joan being so ill and then dying is I have to live the fullest day I can live and I'm grateful for every day that I have because these days were not what I expected they're like bonus days yeah absolutely but that mindset means that you take more from your day you put more into your day and you that gives you a resilience to deal with the harsh winds when they come through your system I suppose so, but, you know, friends have gripped to me and they said, you will burn yourself out quicker by doing all that. Why don't you just lean back into it and uh, not try and do so much? But uh, Or is that an avoidance technique or whatever it is? But I think that I recognise that this has always been my nature to do that. So whether it's been intensified by losing my father when he was so young or whether I was always like that, I I don't know, because he said to me when I was nine years old, you are like an overwound clock. Aristotle's give me a, you know, show me a boy when he is seven, and I'll show you the, the basis of the man, is pretty true, because I saw a friend of mine in Sydney that, uh, called Richard Clark that I've been great friends with 
when we were kids and when he was 13 his parents emigrated to Perth in Australia and we lost contact and then through the school website we got in touch again and when I saw him in 2000 I had no idea whether we would have anything in common to talk about and we met in the lobby of a Holiday Inn in King's Cross in Sydney at six o'clock in the evening in a kind of neutral place thinking well if there's only a drink's worth of friendship left, then <laughs> it's an easy get out. And we were still talking at six o'clock the following morning, wow. having talked nonstop. 12 hours of friendship. He said, you are exactly the same as you were when you were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And I said, oh, my God, that sounds so damning. And he said, no, no, no. You've always asked 2000 questions a minute and you've also been hyper curious about things. So he said, essentially, who you are has not changed. So rather than my thinking of it as something negative or unevolved, he thought it was a good thing. So I've, I've taken great, uh, yeah. I suppose, comfort from that, that who you are is who you are. I suppose trauma can wobble that or destabilize a part of your personality. But I think that I don't know that anybody really changes that much. And I think of all the people that I've known and where I got a real sense of this was when I had all our home video transferred onto DVD about 15 years ago. How lovely. The guy said to me, um, who was doing it, he said, you know, all this videotape is now going to be destroyed. Mm. We'll watch all of this at high speed. And I said, well, I, I don't have the time to do that. And he said, no, 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 you can basically watch the first 18 years of your daughter's life that's on home video in about 10 minutes. So I did. And what became so clear from that is that having previously believed that parenting was 50% nurture, 50% nature, seeing Oi's life whiz by in 10 minutes, her character was absolutely set in stone right from the beginning. And I think that Joe and I had almost nothing to do with it, which is a long-winded way of saying that, you know, what Richard Clark said to me in Sydney in 2000 was that who you are is who you are. And, you know, that you can't really change that. I mean, I really agree. And I think particularly in extremists, we fall back on our default coping mechanism. So yours has always been being in fourth gear, eating fast, doing things fast, remembering things fast, like being busy. And so, of course, that would be your natural way of operating now because it is who you are. The bit I challenge is that with your daughter and with yourself, that the level of secure attachment of the love that you gave her enabled her to fulfil her potential to be fully who she was because she was so securely loved. And if that hadn't been the case, and in a way wasn't the case for you, I mean, your operating system has worked for you. And it, I don't know if you would agree with me, it feels to me that Joan's love for you repaired a lot of damage from your childhood. But if you hadn't had that love, probably that operating system wouldn't have worked so well for you in the way that it has. So some of life is genetics. Some of it is what happens to you and your environment. And some of it is luck. Yeah, I don't subscribe to the luck bit. <laughs> I think that you... Do you make your luck? Yeah, I think you manifest your luck. Uh, if you want something enough, you can manifest it. Tell me about how that operates for you, the luck you've made. Well, my obsession with following the uh, life and career of Barbara Streisand, you know, began when I was 12 years old when I saw her. 
finding a way to actually meet her was, yes, you can say there's some luck involved, but uh, I don't believe that. It's, it's a manifestation of an absolute ironclad determination to meet that person. And it's proved to be because I've now met her multiple times, but each time has been as a result of wanting to do that rather than, oh, this just happened to be a situation that arose where I was able to meet her. It wasn't random. Is one of the lessons, if you're talking about what have you learned through your life, is one of the things that you've learned through your life that if you really put your head down and manifest what you want in a very determined, channeled way, that a lot of the time, I guess not all of the time, you can get what you want. From leaving Swazi, which is a tiny African country, coming and being a very successful actor, do you think most of that is down to your unbridled determination and sort of manifestation and hope, I guess, that you you combined hope with work and discipline? Yes, yeah, because I think of the people that I grew up with or went to university and drama school with, there is inevitably, especially because of the age I am now, a syndrome of people who have said to me, oh, I could have, I should have, I would have. And I don't subscribe to that because you don't arrive at something easily. And a couple of times, two friends of, in particular that I can think of have said, oh, well, it was easy for you. And I've challenged them about it. And I said, in what way do you think it was easier for me than it was for you? And they've, they've flippantly come up with things. And I've challenged both. Every time they've said that, I said, that is your perception of, of what that is. But from the inside, it hasn't been like that. It has been a struggle and a determination to do something that they haven't been prepared to do or thought was worth doing. What do you think is your driver? If you dig down and look at what enabled you to do it so that you didn't have the would have, should have, could have. I think I accepted very, very early on that being told no was not something that would stop me. It was a thing that mm -hmm. galvanised me. That's rather amazing, no? That you see no as a challenge to overcome. Yeah, because if you, if you hear no enough or you're mocked for what you want to do as a kid and you think, well, I'm going to prove them wrong, uh, I'm going to have a go at this, then I think that that in itself is, is a self-propelling motor and self-fulfilling way of thinking that has stood me in good stead. I'll give you an example. 12 years ago, I was encouraged by a friend of mine to create a, a perfume business, which I now have done. And every single person advised me, don't invest your own money, you'll lose your shirt, yada, yada, yada. And so I spoke to my accountant, I said, what would I have saved by not drinking or smoking for the last 40 years? And he came up with a number <laughs> and I said, that is what I'm going to invest in my perfume company. So That's he said, brilliant. you will lose that. I advise you not to do it. And so I went ahead and did it. And within six months, the perfume business was in profit. Go you. So that is a gamble to have taken. And I could very, very easily have, have lost that money. But I think that is just a, a perfect example of, of having been advised one thing and then taken the other path. And that is something that I think is in the DNA of, of the way I operate. I'm sure there are many examples where that same determination has been thwarted, but just going for it and not giving up. You only have one life. So if you get knocked down by something, get up and try, try it all over again is, 
I suppose, the way that I've operated. But what you've just described is the definition of resilience, which is the sort of <laughs> current term is it's not what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you. And it's not that you get knocked down, it's that you bounce back. And that's what you've described. That is exactly what you do. You don't, it doesn't define you in something. You haven't got everything that you wanted or planned or fought or, but when they haven't happened, you've dared to trust, to try again and do something else so that it didn't define you. You know, you've dared to put your head up above the parapet and have another go. And with that have come some amazing wins that then galvanise you, to, I guess, to have more optimism. Of course, you get, you get punished for that, too, because... In the UK, success, you can get really... Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've been... I stupidly read some of the reviews that came out of my memoir. And in England, there was uh, two reviewers in particular said oh, you know, he's oversharing. Whereas in America or Australia or certainly Scotland and Ireland, you know, the Celtic tribes haven't taken that that view, but there is something about the English sensibility of keep your head down and don't overshare or don't be over-open about things that those other cultures don't have an issue with. I'm great friends with the writer-director Bruce Robinson, whom I worked with on How to Get Ahead in Advertising and Withnail and I, and his default button is permanently set to curmudgeon.com. You know, everything's <laughs> terrible, the world's falling apart. And to his annoyance, I'm like a Duracell bunny, of sort of constantly saying, well, you know, the weather's good today, or I'm going to go here on holiday, or I'm going to try and do this. If I could choose between curmudgeon.com and Duracell Bunny, I'd go for Duracell Bunny every time. But also together, you probably make quite good energy because he pulls and pushes and you pull and push back. And then something like with Nell and I happens. But so where are you going to put that energy now? You've done the tour, done the book. No, I'm now going to go on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but what's your next kind of head down pointy direction determination do you know or are you in a fertile void yeah no i just uh, i love working and gardening and going to junk shops and antique fairs and all the things that i did together joan so that hasn't really changed i suppose the template of being on location for her and for me uh, being away from home and working in isolation from each other is a help because we were used to or in the habit of of not constantly being in each other's pockets, although we spoke to each other two or three times a day. But being on location or, or being away from home is something that I am so habituated to that I suppose when I'm on location on a job, it's something that I'm so used to. Whereas if I was home and only working from home for the rest of my days, then that would have to be a major readjustment that Joan is not here anymore. Whereas, you know, when I'm away, I can delude myself into thinking, oh, well, She'll be there when I get back, even though I know that she won't be. It does make sense. It's so familiar being away that that feels her death isn't so present. Whereas being at home where she was, her absence is incredibly present. Although it is also comforting feeling her absence through every room, every smell, all the stuff. So I've got one last question. So people who are grieving often find a new year, a difficult thing, because it's a year without them. And you've had one new year, you've had one Christmas without Joan. 
how do you navigate that? How do you find the idea of another year, 2023, without her? Well, last Christmas, we went to my daughter's partner's family in Austria. Because her birthday was on the 21st of December, we are going to go abroad to the heat before that, sort of mid-December. So that change in geography will mean that we're not facing the Christmas tree and the Christmas turkey without her or her birthday in England. I suppose that'll help in some way. But you have to, you know, you have to get to the point, I know probably in a year's time, where you have to say, well, we're not going away. We're, we're going to deal with the fact that she is no longer physically here. But that's that's our plan for this year. Yeah, and I really do think it makes a difference. Of some people it doesn't, but geographically taking yourself where you don't have lots of memories, it isn't so painful because you're creating different memories in a different place, whereas our brain is wired for place and smell and sight and sound, which is so powerful, that and they work faster than our brains could cognate so that we can get thrown so much by being in a place where someone has been. Why are you smiling at me? Uh, because I think that it's to do with people saying, oh, time heals. That, it's bollocks. Yeah, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I think that, that feeling the pain or feeling the loss reminds you very viscerally of that person's presence. So I embrace that rather than feeling that, oh, I've got to get over this or get around it. If I wake up or in the middle of the day think, oh, my God, I miss her so much, I think that that's a wonderful thing to feel, painful as it is, rather than thinking, oh, well, I've, I am striving towards a place of neutrality where you don't feel that so intensely anymore. And I, I can't really imagine that that will be the case because I, I like feeling that because even if it is painful, it is the most in touch with her that I, that I get to feel as I do if, you know, there are great moments of joy and happiness as well. And your pain is an embodied testament to your love. Yes, absolutely right. <laughs> and honours that love. Yeah. What I wonder over time, and maybe we could have another conversation a different time, but in her giving you permission to have pocketfuls of happiness, I'm assuming that also gives you permission that when the pain isn't intense, grief is an adaptive process, that you can get hit 20 years later by an exocet of loss and pain. But gradually, we do adjust to this new reality, and you are adjusting. So the level of the pain changes over time. It doesn't that you get over it, you accommodate it, you learn to live with the loss. You don't forget and move on or avoid it, but the pain is in you, but the intensity changes and lessens. What do you think about that or feel about that more to the point i think that's right but you know three weeks ago i can remember not being able to get out of bed till lunchtime because i felt tsunami by loss and it's like everything you've got to accommodate and incorporate and just go with it you you can't fight it it just has to be something that you accept and uh, knowing that go for a run have a good meal or see your daughter or call your friends that there is something beyond that you can navigate towards I don't have the answers to anything <laughs> in a nutshell you've described my book grief works which is that you can't fight it you can't wrestle it to the ground and beat it that you have to find a way of living 
with it and letting it come through you in the ways that it does and also access lots of support you know running or having a nice meal but mainly the love and connection to others that it is the love of others that enables us to survive when love dies yes and boy do you find out who your friends truly are when somebody has died my goodness me that has been revelatory that sounds like a bad way surprising good and bad yeah 99 percent of people have have shown themselves beyond measure of generosity but the one percent that haven't I will never forgive and I will never forget. God, I could really, I could hear the steeliness in that. It goes deep. Yeah, I've spoken to people that who came from my book signing or came to my one-man show who have expressed this, that they remember the people that haven't come through for them more than almost anything else. And I thought that that was particular to me, but I realised that this is something that most people that I've now met who are navigating grief have fixed upon if there's anger at all it's with that because the people that didn't make contact or come and see joan when she was dying i can't fix that you can't fix that with a post-death visit because i can't explain to her why they didn't show up yeah exactly so over and out ruthless and they know who they are And one of the things that lots of clients have said to me is that they're annoyed that those people take up so much headspace. Like they don't want their kind of natural evolving grieving to be used up with fury against people who haven't been supportive enough. But it does fizzle through your being. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's it's not that you find out who your friends are, but you find out what kind of friends they are. So um, it's suddenly having very clear, unfiltered vision of how how people are. So that's helpful, I suppose. That is helpful. So we're coming to the end. Of the lollipop. Of the lollipop. (laughs) If you had one more minute to say something to Joan, what would you say? Oh, I know what she'd say to me. Uh, What would I say to her? Well, tell me both. What would she say to you? Oh, she'd say, get on with it, Soise. Don't hold any resentment about people who have let us down don't don't bother with that and i can say oh it's easy for you to say but (laughs) i'm venge filled so um (laughs) no but i'm i say that jokingly what would i say to her oh i don't know let's go to bed now (laughs) (laughs) that's what i would say when in doubt yes the temple where everything is sorted (laughs) thank you so much for having me Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Richard. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, It is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. What did you think about our conversation? What came up for you that we can take out generally from what he said? Well, I really loved his interview. He's incredibly articulate. And I also thought 
there were things that you said, Mum, about grief and the process of grief, which obviously I knew, and you're like Mrs. Grief, so I've heard loads. But there was something about the way that you articulated the process of grief as that oscillation between not doing normal things or feeling vaguely okay at being in the background and then it being quite overwhelming that was so articulate and really just stuck out to me as such a really amazing description of the grief process and also what happens when that doesn't happen and you just get stuck. I'm so pleased you say that because when I was listening I was saying to myself shut up you're just talking too much. (laughs) I always feel that about myself. (laughs) He's incredibly articulate and knows his own process. It is an example for everybody how being given permission, like a pocket full of happiness, that you're allowed to be happy, you're allowed to get on with your life, you're allowed to have moments in your day where you're not sad or, or feeling grief, and how transformative that can be in really giving you permission to do that oscillation between loss and restoration. And how insightful of her. I think maybe if I was dying, I might be a bit more selfish. But I mean, I think it takes a certain wisdom to be able to say to somebody, and like, I want you to be happy. Really loving them into their future, wasn't she? This one was quite close to home for me. Mm. Because my mother-in-law just died at the end of August after eight months of illness of cancer. So I guess it was actually particularly him talking about the illness phase and the dying that I connected with most just because it's still so present for me. What did you connect to? I think I connected to the challenge and the sort of gratitude for it is a very hard time and a good death, which is something I've thought quite a bit about in that I suppose not dissimilar to the story he was telling my mother-in-law died at home with her family and which is what she wanted and And at the same time, eight months of watching someone you love dying is a very, very painful process that takes time. My sense is, for at least talking really of my own experience here, but it takes time to recover from that as well as processing the bereavement itself. It's a sort of double. Yeah, and from at least the outside for you and your husband, there was also that feeling that Richard talked about of the relief when someone is that much in pain or that much close to death that actually by the time it gets to it it, it's obviously a massive loss but a relief and a shock and so many different things all at once Mm. It's, it's all those contrasting things and I also related to that bit when he was talking about him and his daughter and their relationship and the adjustment you know in our own parallel place with my father-in-law and you know in your conversation mum you were touching on the balance of boundaries and not boundaries and I was also thinking about as your parents get older how the power balance tips and you do start looking after your parents and that's a really natural loving shift in energy it's not necessarily comfortable or or (laughs) easy for me though it's also a very loving thing to be caring for your parents when they're going through something so profoundly hard there is some reversal, isn't there, that the parents that looked after you when you were babies and children... Mm, to give back. Then as you age as the parents, you become more childlike, don't you, and, and immobile. And and so there is this two ends of the relationship where it's reversed. And also them joining your family rather than you going to your parents. Grief always involves pain. 
I think the level of complexity of a sudden and unexpected death adds a layer that amps up all of the kind of normal feelings of grief and the complexity of it. It is much harder to be at peace with it. I thought the thing that was blessed for both you and for Richard was not having regrets. Those regrets of all the what-ifs that can drive you mad, really for the rest of your life, I felt. But I think as a sort of general message for people, if we can, as best we can, have relationships where we can have these conversations and be as open as you were and as Joan and Richard and their daughter Ollie were, then that really does protect you into the future, makes a very big difference. Mm, Not leaving huge things underground. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think that a part of that is that you can know somebody is going to die who you love very much and you're very close to. But if you have a complex relationship with that person, that is still going to be complicated when they die because it's a different thing to losing somebody who you just have a a loving... I mean, all relationships are more than just love. But I think that... For example, if you have a complicated with a relationship with a parent and then they die, you are losing them, but you're also losing the sort of imaginary fantasy hope that you have in your head of what your relationship could be like or what you would have wanted it to be like. And so I think there are ways that even if you have time with someone and it's not unexpected, their death can still be complex. I agree. What did you think about... You make your own luck, that sort of your manifest luck. I thought, I want some of what he's got. (laughs) He hears no and he's just like, that's just not yet. Or like, I can just change that. And one of the amazing attitudes to have. Yes, it made me think about sort of positive cycles and vicious cycles of thinking and behaviour. That often if we have that positive mental belief or narratives about ourselves in the world then often things do go more our way also sometimes people are unlucky i think you can create your own luck but you can't control your bad luck as some of your bad luck you just can't no you just can't life is unpredictable it's the only thing that you can know and really unfair some people have unbelievable bad luck and that's nothing to do with what they've done or deserve so i think maybe you can manifest some positive things happening in your life for sure but you can't control the events that happen to you as much I think that's completely true I what I do think and I got from him and I hate the idea of sort of toxic positivity of constantly living your best life I think that's anathema to what life is like but I think living your life with hope and with the optimism that you can reach your goal or have your aim makes the actual day-to-day living of your life a little bit sunnier, living in hope and positivity. And of course, having that energy, and the research backs this up, having that energy that you can make it happen is transmitted to other people who then believe with you and have more confidence with you, and then are more likely to make it happen. So it's it's a kind of a multiplier effect, as you were saying, So if you can have that negatively as well, and everything in between, obviously, as with all things psychological. The only thing I would add to that, it's not in contradiction, but it's sort of alongside, is that I think having those beliefs of agency and self-efficacy is helpful in the way you described. I think at the same time, 
sometimes what people do is live only in the future, only about like, it's going to be a good one. I have hoped that that's when it's going to be good is when this happens or when that happens, or I'm going to make this happen. And then my life is going to arrive. And I think actually there is a balance somewhere between, of course, being hopeful is lovely and emotion that helps us to be generous. And also there's something about the need to be in connection with reality as life is at the moment. And that if you're in a really hard place, then sometimes you need to be where you are. <laughs> Does that make sense? And it's not in contradiction to what you're saying. It's just that I think the next thing, the next thing is not always. Sometimes we also just need to be here where we are to be present and to be able to adjust, even if the now is painful. I had a big reaction <laughs> to the bit where you are talking about his future relationships and, and you saying that we are happiest in relationship. And <laughs> I think this was a button for me because as you guys know I was single for a very very long time and I remember you saying to me yes you are on your own but you know really people are happiest in a relationship and I just was thinking no no I mean that is not true I mean it is true and not true so I think people need connection and I think that you can get that connection from all sorts of places. So for me, I really didn't feel like I needed to be in a relationship to be happy. I got that connection from my work. I got that connection from you. I got that connection from my friends. I think the thing that I knew is that I wanted a baby, <laughs> but I didn't feel like I, I need another person. And so when you said that, I was thinking... I think that is true for some people. And I think it's definitely true if you think it's true, right? Like if you're going through life thinking, I need another person to be in relationship with. But for me, it just wasn't true. I mean, that is interesting. And of course, you're right. And what you say is absolutely valid. The bit I would add in is that there are people who make the decision to be single and that they create lives that are very meaningful for them. The Harvard study, you know, that research that looks at people's outcomes, and it is those that are in relationships, live longer, happier, wealthier, have less pain, and live more meaningful lives. And I think that is probably, it doesn't say partnerships. I think it probably could mean collective relationships. Maybe I read into it as romantic relationships. I also just think when you have studies like that, you can't piece out what is part of that is that our society makes us think that we need to be in relationships. And so that if you are a 50 year old person who is alone, you think that you must be missing something because that is what society is telling you. And so you create a narrative around that. So I think that it's not that I'm saying the study is wrong. I'm just saying that it's also because of how I think society thinks of people who are not in a conventional type of relationship. They're thought less of. I mean, that is definitely true. If you're single, you know, I've worked with many people who are single and having been in a partnership, they're downgraded by their friends. Which is like, it makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah, that is awful. And, like, so, and then also, even if you are happy being on your own, you think that other people are feeling sorry for you. Yeah, and looking down on you. 
That is really annoying. I would add to that that I think that it's loneliness, isn't it, and social isolation, which are, I think, statistically the sort of killers. I mean, statistically of the mortality rates. It's like smoking nine cigarettes a day, yeah. Yes, I remember reading a, in a book called The Compassion Project that level of social connection, social support is the greatest predictor of mortality, more than what you smoke, what you drink, what you eat, wow. how much you exercise. That's insane. It is the strongest predictor of your mortality. I think the challenge in the society and culture, Western culture that we live in, is our units of companionship tend to be couples and families, don't they? I think in places where there are exceptions, aren't there, where there are communities or people have set themselves up in certain ways where they're not isolated. I think the difficulty in old age is often a lot of older people are left alone. And that's very different about being single or with a partner. It's actually being on your own with no one with you. And I think that to me, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, what I really like about these conversations is you push back on my biases. <laughs> and I agree with both of you. And I think you're both right. And so that, you know, I think I come from my own bias, obviously, like we all do. Mm. Yes, you have been in a relationship since you were 19 years old. That is like... 18. 18 years old. That's just weird. Like most people do are not like that. I agree. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I agree. So we're going to have to draw the conversation to a close there. Thank you both so much. And a particular thank you to Richard E. Grant for a fascinating conversation. For those of you listening, do please subscribe, rate and review. And if there's someone you think might enjoy this episode, do please share it. Until next week, thank you. Thank you.